Okay, guys, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started with, with the sermon this morning. Uh, and I want to remind you all, we, we're in a sermon series covering the book of Revelation for the fall. And what we've talked about with the book of Revelation is that Revelation is an uncovering, that it's a pulling back of the veil that so often kind of uh, sits over our eyes, and it shows us what's really going on in our world, that Revelation, it, it reframes our reality. And Revelation is consistent in reminding us that what is something that's true about all of us as people is that everybody worships. That everybody in our world is worshiping something. You guys have heard me use this quote before. It's from David Foster Wallace in a speech to, a graduation speech to Kenyon University. And he says, uh, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, as you can see, David Foster Wallace, not a Christian, okay? Be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some intangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. What he's saying is that as people, we all worship and we get a choice about what we worship and what we choose to worship will shape our lives and how we experience life. And in that sense, he's agreeing with what the book of Revelation shows us. Is that we have a choice about who we worship, that we can worship uh, the one true creator God, the God who's revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, or we can worship other things, things like power or pleasure. Revelation calls those things, it personifies those things as a beast, and we'll get there in a few weeks. David Foster Wallace, he, he kind of picks apart what are, what are things that happen when we worship those other gods. And he says, for example, worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you're, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Right? He's agreeing with the book of Revelation that all of these other things that we worship beside the one true God, that they pull at us and eventually they destroy us. And so Revelation is, is making that choice clear for us, and it's consistently calling us to the worship of God. And it does that by showing us how beautiful he is, how glorious he is, how worthy of worship he is. And so this morning, we're going to be in another throne room scene in the book of Revelation. So if you've been here kind of in the last few weeks, you'll know we've spent a lot of time unpacking Revelation 5, which is this picture of God in his throne room. This morning, we're in a different throne room scene in Revelation 7. You're going to ask, well, haven't we been here before? Kind of. And that's because of the way the book of Revelation works. See, we tend to think of Revelation like we think of all books, which is we tend to think of them as, as, as providing play-by-plays. Like, and then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Almost as if we're watching a game unfold. That's kind of how we read the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation was not meant to be read like that. It's more like a, a replay of a critical scene. And each of those uh, from different angles. So you'll see kind of the same play unfolding, but from a different position on the field, which shows you different things about it. And what we see in Revelation is each of those instant replays ends with a scene in the throne room. Because that's the moment of victory. It's kind of the height of the vision. So we were in Revelation 5, right? That was like one picture of the throne room. Then we get into Revelation 6, which is these seals, these judgments that are being visited on the earth, and then we're back in the throne room. 
And then we'll leave the throne room again and we'll see kind of another perspective on what's unfolding in the world between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Then we'll be back in the throne room. So that's kind of the structure of how Revelation works. So what we're doing this morning is we're taking apart another one of those throne room scenes. And here's what we're going to see in this scene. We're going to see a... I'll just write it up first. A beautifully diverse group of confident, humble worshipers. A beautifully diverse group of humble, confident worshipers. That is what we're going to see as we study Revelation 7. And as we do that, what it's going to show us is a window into God's very heart. And then after that, it's also going to give us a window into us, who we as God's people have been created and called to be. So that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to invite Helen Simpkins to come up. Uh, Helen is going to read for us uh, the whole chapter of Revelation 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. It'll also be on the screen uh, here behind me, and you can you can follow along. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve, serve him day and night in his temple. 
and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thanks, Helen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that as uh, we spend time in it, thinking about it, Lord, studying it this morning, uh, we pray that you would be enlightening our hearts. God, would you be uh, clarifying the choice before us of who to worship? Would you be convicting us in the places that we have worshiped other gods? And would you be showing us the beauty and the freedom that comes uh, from worshiping you? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about this morning, first thing we're going to unpack is this beautifully diverse group of worshipers that we see in the text before us this morning. And we're presented with two different pictures of the people worshiping God. The first is John hears about this group of worshipers. He hears about 144,000 people who have been sealed uh, for the worship of God. And this 144,000, that's 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. That's right, right? Never been very good at math, but 12 times 12, 10 times 10 times 10. And the number 12 in the Bible is this idea of fullness or of completeness. And so to have 12 by 12, 144, 12 for 12 different tribes shows us uh, the fullness of God's plan, the fullness of the people who have been brought in to worship God. But you can be full and not very big, right? Like you can have like a very tiny glass of water that's very full, or you can have a very large glass that's almost empty. But here we see a number that is both full and very large, that times 10, times 10, times 10. But the emphasis there is to show us how large the group of people who have been sealed for the worship of God. And yet, there's a limitedness to it, right? I mean, for us in the 21st century, 144,000 doesn't sound all that big, first of all. And it's limited uh, to ethnic Israel. It's all these different tribes of the nation of Israel. That's what John hears, is the fullness of the amount of people who have been sealed for the worship of God. But then he turns around, and what he sees is this multitude. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That John turns around, he's expecting 144,000 people, but instead what he sees is this mass of humanity all wearing the same thing, all dressed in these flowing white robes. Right? It's like being in Knoxville on UT game day. This mass of people, this sea of humanity, all wearing that horrible orange color, right? That that is what John is taking in, this mass of humanity, all wearing the same thing, all shouting the same thing. And, and what he notices right away is that all of these people are very different from each other. John sees it. He is seeing people who, who he doesn't even really have a category for in his mind, who he has not in his day-to-day -day life interacted with. People from all different cultures, from every nation, from every language, from every tribe, every kind of person is there before the throne of God worshiping. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? This incredible diversity and yet a unity in the midst of all of it. All of these people worshiping God. 
And our culture says yes to that, right? It's like, yes, that's good. That's beautiful. That's what all, uh, so much of our conversation has been, around in the, uh, been about in the last several years in this country when we talk about race is, is the importance of diversity. That's what all of our DEI initiatives are aimed at is getting this representative picture of, of people. It speaks uh, to Dr. King's dream. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the son of former slaves and the son of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right down in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And what Dr. King knew is that the dream that he had was a dream that was first in the mind of God. That his dream was taking a piece of this heavenly vision and praying it to earth. That our dream for what we would see is this diversity that we find so beautiful before it was ever in any of our minds or any of our hearts, it was in the heart of God. This has been God's heart from the beginning of time. And we see it in these two different images that he uses of the 144,000 and in this multitude of people. Because this 144,000, that when we read it, it's like, well, this is weird. It's limited to just this nation of Israel. That there are even clues in that list that show us that it's pointing us to something bigger. I don't know how often you dive into biblical genealogies, okay? <clears throat> but when you pay attention to the details, what you see in this genealogy, this list of tribes, is that it doesn't start where all of the other lists starts. It starts in a different place. It starts with a tribe of Judah. And then one of the tribes here has been deleted, one of the tribes has been taken out and one of the other, uh, and another tribe has been inserted into this list. What it, what it shows us, what it prompts us toward is it, it, it makes us curious to ask what's going on here. And Eugene Peterson in his commentary on Revelation, it's called Reverse Thunder, he talks about how what's so common in the Hebrew kind of imagination and in Hebrew poetry is the rhyming of images. So we always think of rhyming as having to do with words, Right? that you keep kind of the stem of the word the same, but you change the first letter and it gets your attention. That's what Hebrew poetry does with images. It takes an image that's very similar and it changes it just a little bit to make you think. So he's got this image of the 144,000 that's been changed just a little bit. He hears about this and then he turns around and he sees, which is just like earlier when we were in Revelation 5, right? He hears about the lion and he turns and he sees a lamb. So John hears 144,000 and he turns and he sees a multitude. And this phrase from every nation, all peoples, tribes, and tongues, that's a phrase that's repeated all throughout the book of Revelation. But here, John has changed it just a little bit. And he's taken this idea of nation and he's front-loaded it. He's put it at the beginning of this phrase. And what he's doing is he's calling our attention to the heart of God as it has existed throughout all of the biblical narrative. It takes us all the way back to Abraham. This person who God called out, uh, out, 
out of his previous life, and he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, what? All the nations of the world will be blessed. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That God's heart has always been for all people. Always. That's how abounding God's love is. It's a love that cannot be contained in just one group. It's a love that has always been for everyone. And guys, this was so unlike religions of the ancient world. That, that people in that day, they had their God that their people worshipped. And the, the Canaanites had their God. The Egyptians had their gods. The Assyrians had their gods. And what they were always trying to do was fight with each other to show which gods were the best. God doesn't play that game. God is always very confident that he is God. There is no other God beside him. But his love is not just for his people. It's a love that stretches to all people. All kinds of people. Every kind of people. That's our God. That's the heart of our God, and we see it on display here. That John is, he's seeing visually the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, this promise that God made hundreds and thousands of years before. He's experiencing it. This picture of beautiful diversity that shows us the bigness of God's heart, that shows us the strength and the power, the overflowing abundance of God's love. People talk about Christianity often as if it is this, uh, and, and maybe maybe you've thought this, I've thought this at times, like, God, this seems so narrow, Right? It, at times, it seems so tiny. It seems so uniform. And the world out there is a place that's all full of adventures and different kinds of people, and Christianity is like kind of like boring, vanilla uh, group of people. Okay, guys, that's not true. That's not true. All that 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 our kind of worldview that says that our spirituality, right? When we talk about our spirituality, we talk about my God. I've got a God, you've got a God, the other person has a God. That kind of a hyper-individualistic spirituality has no room for this kind of God. You can't have a picture of all of us worshiping before the throne of God if all of our gods are different. No, but this is one God, one God whose heart is for the entire world, for people who are like you and people who aren't like you. And, guys, this is what is so amazing, is that Across space and time, across history, Christianity is the most diverse worldview, ideology, way of seeing the world, whatever you want to call it, that has ever existed. Ever! There is no other primary, there's no other lens through seeing the world that has been embraced by so many different kinds of people throughout human history. Even now, even now, only about a quarter of the world's Christians live on it, uh, in Europe. About a third, a little more than a third, 37% live in North and South America. About one in every four Christians lives in sub-Sahara Africa. And one in eight is found in the Asia kind of uh, Pacific region. And y'all, that, that was like the best data I could find was from 10 years ago. That balance has continued to shift. 
that the church does not look just like this room. The church that is worshiping Jesus Christ, even now, here on this Sunday, around the world, is so diverse. It's so full that that, that picture that resonates with us that we find beautiful was first beautiful in the heart and mind of God and shows us his overwhelming, his abounding, his powerful uh, difference-crossing love. It's not God's heart that's constricted. It's our hearts that are constricted and small. God's heart is so huge and overflowing with love. And what we see about these worshipers is that these worshipers uh, are confident about what God has done for them. They are confident about what God has done for them because they have been sealed. We see that in verse 13. It says, one of these elders addressing me, addressed me saying, uh, who are these clothed in white and from where have they come? I love this. And John says, I don't know. You know. And the guy's like, you're right. I do know. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And I'm going to draw for us a little timeline here, okay? So here's how we often, when people hear the great tribulation, that like may set off all kinds of uh, like question marks in your head. So, the way that, I don't know about you, but the way that I grew up hearing about the book of Revelation is that this is kind of like, let's think of this timeline as uh, the course of history from Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and we'll call this his uh, second coming, when the kingdom comes in its fullness. So, this stretch of time. I always thought that the book of Revelation was about a, a slice of time that was like right here. a very tiny piece of just seven years here right at the end. And like the book of Revelation takes this and it like blows it up and it's all about, it's just this, it's taking this tiny thing and telling us all of these details about it. But guys, there are a lot of things I could say about this. I'll just say this morning, this doesn't make a lot of sense. We talked about this in the beginning of the book that John wrote this book to a specific people in a specific time and it had to mean something to them. Talking about these seven years right here at the end would have no relevance for the people who first got this letter, right? So the great tribulation is not this like three and a half years right here. The great tribulation is all of this time. It's all of the time between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and between when he comes again. And can you relate to that reality? Yeah? Let me ask that again. Can you relate to that reality? Yes, that the world that we live in, that we experience this world as as a place that is full of great tribulation. It's a hard world. That all of these bowls and judgments that we read about, things like famine and death and natural disaster, it's happening all the time. Wars, the scourge of war that hurts us, that hurts everyone, it's happening all the time. It's a part of this great tribulation. Yes. And the people who first got this letter, they they felt intimately uh, in their souls what that meant. Being this harassed minority in the midst of these massive cities in an empire who thought that they were actually seditious. That was trying with everything it could to stamp them out. Who, who were a part of experiencing all of, the, they knew what it was to live in the world, a, a world that was hard, and being Christians made their lives harder. Do you connect to that at all? You're like, man, sometimes it would just be a lot easier to not be following Jesus. Yes. Yes, that's true, okay? That's a part of being, being people who live in the midst of this great tribulation. Oh, this world is a hard 
And following Jesus sometimes makes it a lot harder. It can feel like the world is pressing in on us, pressing in against us. Oh, and in the midst of that experience, John gets this picture that it's so good, he has to share it with his friends. And he says, guys, you have no idea what is coming. That this tiny church that feels like it's in the, on the verge of being stamped out. Remember, he's written these letters and he said, look, guys, things are not great. There's all of this, like, immorality that's soaked in. There's all of these, like, false teachings that are confusing people. There's all this persecution that's trying to make the church not exist. And in the middle of that, they get a picture from God that says, guys, this is so much bigger than you can even imagine. That what I'm going to do is so much bigger than you can even imagine. It's not going to stop here. It's going to keep going. And it's going to go far beyond the people that are right around you. Far bigger than you can ever imagine. The same is true for us. All oh, that as often as we feel squeezed and feel like the pressure of following Jesus in this world, Jesus is saying, hey, it is far bigger than you can ever imagine. This story, it's not just your story. It's the story of multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people. And I have multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people who are so different from you who I also love, and I'm going to use you to love them. But in this midst of this world, you can have confidence about the, about the movement of God's plan in the world. And you can have confidence that as someone who is following Jesus, you have his name, uh, you're sealed. It's like it's written across your forehead. And that seal, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, is the Holy Spirit. In him, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Oh, that if you were in Christ, you've been marked by, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that means two things for you. It means that all the promises of God are yes for you. That he who sits on the throne will shelter you with his presence. That there will be a day when you will hunger no more, neither thirst no more, when the sun shall not strike you, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. He will guide us to springs of living water. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's a promise for you. That's a promise for us. And here's what's true about these future promises that our confidence in them is so, is so sure. Even when we don't feel it, it, the reality is so sure that it can actually change how we live in the present. Like my first job out of college, I got paid on a bi-weekly basis because I got paid every two weeks, which meant that two months out of the year, what happened? I got that extra paycheck, right? And you, you better believe I did not budget for that paycheck because I wanted to spend it like it was free money. And at the beginning of that month, I was saying yes to everything. Yes, I will go to dinner with you. Yes, I will go see that movie. Yes, I will buy that plane ticket because I know the money is coming. Right? Now, most of you are more responsible budgeters than I was at that point, but that's okay. Just for the sake of the illustration, right, that, that when we know something is coming that we are looking forward to, we've got these resources that are coming our way, we're saying, yes, I'm going to start spending them now. And that may not be the best budgeting, but that is how Jesus calls us to live, friends. All that the promises of God are so true for you that you can go out and start spending them now. 
all the love and the peace and the joy that are coming your way, they're so full then that we get to taste them now. And even that little taste is more than we can ask or imagine. And so we give it away. Oh, and that what this means is that we have the confidence to love people across differences. Because loving across differences, y'all, it is a hard work, isn't it? It is awkward. It is scary. And a lot of times it feels like dying to ourselves, doesn't it? Spoiler alert, that's what we're called to, dying to ourselves. Right? We talked about that two weeks ago. That's the gospel. If you get into relationships, into situations where you think, man, loving this other person is hard because it's so different than me. Yes, that's right where God wants you. Because in that moment, what you and I have to rely on, whether that person is our spouse, and I will tell you, loving across difference with your spouse is very hard. When you married them, you may have thought, oh, this, we're, this is a match made in heaven because we're so alike. You're not. Right? That may take five years or fi I, probably not even five years to figure out. But you're not. Of course. Of course. Because what you're going to need in that place is God's resources to do what he's called you to, and that's what's going to make it a showcase of the gospel. That's true for this thing that we are doing together. Are there, are there, you don't have to answer this one out loud, okay? Are there any people in this room who ever annoy you? And if they don't, if that is not true, then you haven't been here long enough. I promise if you stick around for a while, it'll happen. Maybe not only who just annoy you, but like who really get on your nerves, who feel really different than you. Maybe whose political perspective is really different than yours. Even in church. That even here, what we're called to do is love across our differences. And yes, that's hard. And yes, that's exactly what God has called us to. And as we practice that here and with each other, what that does is it strengthens our muscles to go out and do that confidently in the world. That God has called us to that kind of uh, difference-crossing love out in our world. And to do that not out of fear. Guys, we talk about that fear. I know we talk, oh, I talk to you about that fear all the time. The fear of like, what is it like to raise kids in this, in today's world? I'm like, I sound just like my parents and my grandparents, but I'm saying it, right? You don't have to have kids to know that. This, is, this world, is, it can be a scary place. It feels like oh, it's set against Christianity, and so it's easy for us to take this defensive posture to push back and be like, okay, if you come toward me, like, I'm ready, right? But if you don't come near me, then I'll just like, just, just, I'm happy that you could stay away. No! God is not calling us to engage with our world with that kind of defensive, fear-based posture. He's saying, get out there and boldly love the people around you no matter how different they are because I have my people who are out there and I'm going to use you to show them my love for them. So you don't have to, to hang back in that defensive posture. No, get out there and love people with boldness. And guys, it may seem small, but even inviting people to a parenting conference sometimes feels like it takes a lot of boldness, doesn't it? Great, we're practicing. To you, 35, that's the whole point of us like playing pickleball or doing these things that we do is to create spaces for people to come and experience Jesus' love. And you know what? They may not ever respond to that, and that is for them to deal with with the Lord. But what we're going to do is love people boldly across differences. That's what we're about here because that's what the gospel is about. That's the heart of God. And we're going to do that uh, with humility. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who were these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
that the people who are here worshiping God are united in their desperate need for him. That that is what pulls us together. That, that is the only thing that is powerful to unite people across so many differences is our admission of our absolute desperation for God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That, that we cannot rescue ourselves from having such small hearts that left on our own, all we are able to do is to resent and to hate people who are different than us. And that's mean we can't talk a good game about loving people who are different than us. You can read plenty of articles about how to do that, and many of them will have very valuable things to say. But thinking about it and thinking of myself as someone who loves across difference is very different than being a person who actually does it. And that what is true about us when we are left to ourselves is that we are small-hearted, we're hard-hearted people who are always insisting on our ability to do for ourselves, who are always insisting on our self-sufficiency, who are always insisting that given enough time, if you understood my motive enough, you would know that I'm a good enough person to merit God's love. That what we are always playing back for ourselves and for everyone else is our own highlight reel, aren't we? Hey, how are you? Well, let me tell you about all the exciting and very amazing things that I did this week. That's what I want to tell you. That's what I want to tell myself. But that isn't, when we went into eternity, that's not the song we're going to sing. We are not going to be playing our highlight reels for, for each other, our reels for each other in heaven. The song that we're going to be singing is the song of what God has done for us, the amazing, the miraculous. We're going to be singing of the abundant and strong love of God, the powerful love of God, and how it has changed us. Oh, friends, that is a desperately humble place, isn't it? So when we talk about loving across difference and engaging our world, we're not coming in saying, well, listen to me. I got all the answers. I have it all figured out. We're saying, no, there is a God who loves you, who has loved me in the place of my great need and will love you in the place of your great need. Will you come to him and confess your need for him? And trust that he's going to meet you there and then draw you into a place of desperate joy. A joy that's not dependent on our circumstances. Guys, the best picture of this for me, uh, when I was between my eighth grade and my freshman year, I got to go on this mission trip to Papua New Guinea. My parents did not come, so I guess I had other family on the trip, so they weren't being totally negligent. Don't worry. Uh, went across the world and to this tiny island nation. We, like, fly in. There are multiple fl plane flights. We, like, get on this truck, and it drove us up uh, on one of the most dangerous roads in the world. And I kid you not, I was sitting in the back of the truck, like, oh, this is so fun. I'm in eighth grade. And I was like, oh, waving. And someone took a machete and, like, sliced it in my hand. I'm like, this is very scary, right? This is not Bakersfield anymore. And I'm sure they were just messing around with me. But as an eighth grader, it really kind of shook me. We drive up to these mountains, and we do, like, the typical mission trip thing. We're, like, enclosing the basement on some missionaries' homes so that they can have more space uh, to live their life up in this very remote village where everyone else is living in thatched huts. And like is typical on a mission trip, I got very ill and was totally incapacitated for half of the trip. Guy drank the water or whatever. But toward the end, I recovered. I was like well enough to participate in what was happening around me. And on one of the last days, we went and... Uh, attended a church service and it was up on a mountain in uh, someone's home that was very different than my home. 
and we sat listening to God's word together. And afterwards, uh, this woman who could not be more different than me looked at me and said through, uh, through the missionary, she said, uh, I will be praying for you every day. And I will be praying that you come back here to tell people about Jesus. Because if these people would not have come here to tell me about Jesus, I would be spending forever apart from him. And my life now would be so different. So I'm going to be praying for you. That what she was saying is that her hope was the same as my hope. That what she was recognizing is that left on her own, she was desperate. And that we shared that desperation. And that because of how that desperation had been turned to joy, she wanted other people to experience that joy, not only into eternity, but right now. So she said, I'm going to pray for it. Yes. And then we worshiped together. I wish I could tell you what song it was. I don't know. It was probably some late 90s, early 2000s praise song that had been translated into kumen, which was the language that they spoke. But it was so moving to think right now we are worshiping God across all of these differences, but we're singing praise to him. And when we are in heaven, that is what we are going to be doing together with people who are so different than us across space and time. And we're not going to be singing songs that we wrote here in this country or songs they wrote in that country. We're going to be singing the song that God has written into our lives and into our hearts. And this table this morning is a place that we get to practice singing that song. Because this table is a place that we come and admit our desperate need for God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. This table is a place of confession. It's a place where we say, God, my heart is so small. And we tell God, here are the examples of the smallness of my heart. Here are the places I have been consumed with jealousy. Here are the places I have failed to be content. God, here are the places that I have hated people who are different than me. God, here are the places that I have failed to do, failed to love the people you have called me to love across difference. God, I'm so sorry. Would you do for me what I cannot do for myself? Would you come? Would you meet with me? Would you save me? And this is also the place where we taste God's promises for us. That one day, we will have a day where we will hunger no, no more, no thir- nor thirst anymore, where all of our deepest needs will be satisfied in God. And here at this table, we get a taste of that, a physical taste of it. That God is with us in his very presence as we take these elements by faith and that he is meeting us in his promises, with his promises, and giving them to us now. That this table is the place that we run to and we say, oh God, would you, would you meet me in my need? Would you give me more than I can even ask or imagine? And this table is the place that he says, yes. That no matter how much you feel or don't feel it, that what he is saying is, yes. All of my promises to you are yes in Jesus Christ. So come and taste them. And if you were at a place in your life where you were saying, I am not willing to admit, admit or acknowledge my desperation uh, for God, Uh, then these elements are not for you right now. You're welcome to come up here to ask for prayer, and the people who are serving would love to pray for you. But don't take the elements yet, because you're not here to admit your desperation. And if you are a Christian who has places in your heart where you are saying, oh, I actually don't need God. If you have places in your life where you are saying to God, I am totally self-sufficient in this area of my life, please leave it alone, then this table is not for you right now either. This table is for us as we come and admit our our unmeasurable desperation for God and as we come in faith for him to meet us there. And if that desperation is true for you, 
like on an emotional level or even not on an emotional level, even if you just know that it's true, come on, bring it. You're free to ask for prayer as well because the people who are serving uh, would love to pray for you. That's what I'm doing when I'm crossing my arms. That's how you ask for prayer, okay? And then when you're ready for the elements, you can put out your hands and they'll be served to you. We have also put the gluten-free options in each tray. So you can, if you're gluten-free, you can come up wherever you want and you can still take communion with us. I also want to encourage you that as we are engaged here, uh, use the prayer wall because this is going to be a slow process. We have four songs that we're going to do here to create time for you to reflect, to repent, uh, to meet with God here at this table. And when you're done or before, you can go back there and you can take someone else's prayer, something they've asked you to pray for. You can leave a prayer and ask people in this room to pray for you. And if you've done that before and you have something hanging up on your dashboard or wherever you keep it, um, you can still get another prayer. So I want to invite you uh, to be a part of that. So uh, our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this body uh, has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'm going to pray for us. The servers are going to come up. You can line up here in the middle and come and take the elements uh, as you're ready. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, God, we are thankful for your heart, uh, for your love, God, that is so abounding, that is so strong uh, and powerful, that it's a love that has come and has sought out your people. Uh, Lord, would you stir up in us uh, our desperation? God, would you remind us of how much we need you as we come to the table? And Lord, would you meet us here in our desperation with desperate joy uh, of of having those needs met in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.